I'll be reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 1. In the mid-20th century, there was a British pastor and evangelist named Alan Redpath. He wrote, There is no circumstance, no trouble, no testing that can ever touch me until first it has gone past God, gone past Christ, and then right through to me. And if it has come that far, it has come with great purpose. that good? That great purpose, what he's alluding to, is the sovereignty and the providence of God. I think he would also say, with me and with Scripture, that suffering doesn't just come past God, but in that sense it comes from God for our good and his great wisdom. So Paul addresses this suffering in the book of 2 Corinthians verse 1 as it relates to his ministry, and he relates that suffering to the entire church as well. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 11 is the text. Would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? As we read it, remember that it's perfectly inerrant and inspired. This is the Word of God. I'll begin in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, So through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Amen. Please be seated. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let us pray. Great and holy God, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, giver of all wisdom and all knowledge, help us to understand the truths that we have read in this text. Open our hearts to receive them. Touch us, we pray. Comfort us and be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to talk about suffering as Paul has elaborated in these verses. There's five things I hope to 
actually six things I hope to bring to your attention. We're going to see how suffering can produce praise to God, first of all. Secondly, we'll show how suffering shows God's kindness to us. Thirdly, we'll see how suffering equips you to serve. Fourthly, we'll see what it has to do with your union with Christ. Fifthly, we'll see that suffering often brings you to the very end of yourself and for a good purpose. And sixthly, we'll look at how that resets your hope. All of these things are important. I'll go over this list again if you're taking notes uh, as we touch on these particular things. One of the men um, of the 17th century who I absolutely love, I think if you've ever read anything by Samuel Rutherford, you'll agree that you love him too. Can't wait to meet him. He suffered greatly. Many of his children died um, after, while they were still young. I believe his wife died. He suffered greatly. He wrote a book called The Loveliness of Christ, which I'll reference a few times during the sermon because he understands suffering so well. He wrote, If your Lord call you to suffering, be not dismayed. There shall be a new allowance of the king for you when you come to it. One of the softest pillows Christ has is laid under his witness's head, though often they must set down their bare feet among the thorns. Many of you feel like your feet are among the thorns right now. Many of you feel like you are suffering right now. And yet Christ is with you. And this should cause you to praise God as Paul did. Paul's writing in a time of great distress. The church has been suffering. He has been suffering because of the church. They've rejected him once. He's been back and forth trying to woo them back to the gospel. And in the midst of all the difficulties, and he talks later about the difficulties he experienced in Asia, in the midst of all of it, when he opens this letter that addresses much of the letter, addresses suffering, he opens with praise to God and gratitude. And he cannot help himself. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comforts. Think of all that Paul has endured for the gospel. And if he didn't know God, he certainly wouldn't be able to speak like this. The carnal man, when he faces suffering... God is not merciful and kind or blessed. He views God as harsh and cruel, uncaring and distant. But Paul's whole view of suffering and his whole worldview actually is shaped on his knowledge of God. He views life through the lens of the Word of God that reflects the writer of the Word of God. And he's determined to live the life his master requires of him. In chapter 5 of this same letter, he says, Whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim to please God. This is what he wants to do. He knew that the Almighty God was his good Father and had graciously saved him from slavery to sin and the devil. And he praises him as God and Father. And what a wonderful way to start a letter that really highlights suffering. Blessed be the God and Father of what? Of our Lord Jesus Christ. He blesses God. He praises God. He honors God. And there are many things that we should praise God for. And in suffering, Paul praises God for Jesus Christ. 
the Savior, His salvation, we also, when we face suffering, we need to remember the gospel. Remember what God has done for you. If He has saved you, then all other suffering really becomes almost inconsequential. This is Paul's message in the end of Romans chapter 8. Paul also begins Ephesians chapter 1 in much the same way. Ephesians 1 verses 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved, the beloved being Christ. We see that when Paul writes about God, especially when he writes about suffering, he remembers Jesus Christ and the great love that the Father showed to us and the sacrifice of his Son. Certainly we also see the love of Christ for his church and the sacrifice of his son. Paul's philosophy of life and philosophy of suffering produces praise because it rests in the unshakable work of God to bring you to salvation. Listen to Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace which we now stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. We glory in our sufferings. Peter makes the same connection in a beautiful way in 1 Peter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading and kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Verse 11, verses 10 and 11, he continues, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So God is to be praised, even in the midst of suffering, primarily because he has saved us. The Son is to be praised for his obedience to the Father in saving us. The Spirit is to be praised for revealing truth to the prophets and then also to our own hearts. And what a counterintuitive thing when you're suffering to turn your heart to praise God. And yet this is what Scripture teaches. This is what we should do as well. Praise God for your salvation. We have an eternal hope. But Paul also sees in the Father someone even more than a God who saves. He sees a person, a Father, who is kind and compassionate in the midst of suffering. As we read in Isaiah 40, he gathers his lambs together and holds them close to his bosom. This is a picture of the love God has for his own, his own children, whom he's adopted. It shows God's kindness in a special way when we're suffering and we feel the comfort of our Lord. So it shows God's kindness. This is 
Verse 3, he's the father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction. He's the father who comforts us. Samuel Rutherford said, he delights to take up his fallen children and to mend broken brows. Binding up the wounds is his office. He delights to lift you up when you're suffering. He delights to comfort you. I remember when I was a child and I would get hurt. I would fall. What did I want? I wanted to run straight to my mother. I wanted her to wrap me up. I wanted her to to wash my wounds and to put a bandage on. Somehow the band-aid always made it feel better. I don't understand that. But that's what I wanted. How much more should we want to run to God when we're suffering? And how much more does our Father want to wrap you up and comfort your soul? He says that God is the God of all comfort. Do you realize there's no comfort or mercy apart from God? When you're suffering, if you go somewhere else, you won't find comfort. Comfort only comes from God. So during our trials or our persecutions, when other may leave, others may run from Christ, and that's what Christ said would happen. If you remember the parable of the sower, persecution or temptation comes and the unsaved just walk away. But those who are in Christ say with Peter, Lord, to whom shall we go? Where will we go? So how do we see God's comfort in our lives? Well, many, many ways, of course. I'll just highlight a few. He gives us our daily bread. He meets all of our needs according to His riches and glory. Your heart is beating because God is sustaining you. You're breathing another breath because God is giving you breath. He gives you your very being. He's your provider and your sustainer. That's why it's always applicable to pray before a meal. You're thanking God for giving you the food that you are eating. And He does sustain you. We see also, secondly, He forgives our sins through Jesus Christ. We've already talked about this. This is the primary focus of our thanks, that He has saved us. Thirdly, He protects us from the evil one. He remembers that we are dust and we're subject to great temptation. And yet He will never let us be tempted beyond what we can bear. As Spurgeon said, the devil is God's devil. The devil can only do what God allows. Samuel Rutherford said, I find it most true that the greatest temptation out of hell is to live without temptations. If my waters should stand, they would rot. Faith is the better of the free air and of the sharp winter storm in its face. Grace withereth without adversity. The devil is but God's master fencer to teach us how to handle our weapons. It's good. So Satan is used by God in our lives to help us to better handle our weapons and to recognize the great comfort that we have in Christ. So as you are buffeted and tossed and shaken by the world, and I, I know that many of you are feeling shaken by life, Maybe by sickness, maybe by great distress regarding a family member or a close friend. 
a broken relationship, when we are thus tossed and shaken, in His mercy, He comforts us and He fills us with hope. And this is something that's from above. This is not something that just you work a a formula, oh, I'll just read the Psalms and then I'll feel better. No, His Spirit comforts your soul. He changes how you look at circumstances and thereby how you feel by reminding you of the truth of your salvation and His promises. In this, He gives you hope. There's a verse in Romans that's often used as a benediction. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Your belief in Christ gives you great hope even in the midst of affliction. Verse 4, he says that God comforts us in all our affliction, all of it. Again, Samuel Rutherford said, Whenever I find myself in the cellar of affliction, I always look about for the wine. God is doing a mighty work through the affliction, the trials, the suffering that you're experiencing. And I don't take any of this lightly. I'm not saying these things unknowingly. I know that many of you are suffering greatly in various ways. Your pastor, I love you. And I feel the weight of your suffering as well. And yet I'm saying that God is directing even the suffering for your good. He's never the author of evil. And yet all things occur according to his perfect plan. And this is true. So I want to ask you, if you're suffering especially, but you need to know this truth for when you do suffer. Do you believe that everything that happens is part of God's perfect plan? His wise and good plan for your good. Do you really believe that? Job did. Even after losing everything in a single day and experiencing physical suffering that we can never imagine. Job believed it. Joseph believed it after being sold by his own family into slavery. Can you imagine what a loving family? Being wrongly imprisoned for years, rotting in a prison. He believed it was for God. And for his good. Daniel believed it after the destruction of Jerusalem. Being forced into exile. And made a a servant to a foreign king. And certainly Jesus believed. That God's perfect plan was right and good. He came to the earth. Was despised and rejected by men. Suffered and died on a cross. He knew that it was good. When we face suffering and trials in life, we, we don't rejoice that we're suffering, but we rejoice in the God who comforts us, the God who has saved us. And we don't need to focus on the whys. Why is this happening, Lord? Why, why am I experiencing this difficult thing? I think that's the wrong question. It seems to want to penetrate the mind of God, to see the whole canvas, when all you really get to see is this one stroke of paint. Rather, she would ask our, we should ask ourselves, what, what is God's purpose for this in my life? This is miserable. I hate suffering. Why? What can I learn from it? How can this benefit me spiritually? How can this encourage the church? These questions bring us to God. 
the last Rutherford quote. I just love it because he's suffered so much and his insight is so clear. He writes, It is the Lord's kindness that he will take the scum off us in the fire. Who knows how needful winnowing is to us and what dross we must want ere we enter into the kingdom of God. So narrow is the entry to heaven that our knots, our bunches, our lumps of pride and self-love and idle love and world love must be hammered off of us that we may throng in, stooping low and creeping through that narrow and thorny entry. Samuel Rutherford knew that he was suffering for a higher purpose. If you know Christ today, if you've repented of your sin, if you've rejected the enticements of the world and you're running toward your Savior, if you live in such a way that you are giving up everything so that you might obtain the pearl of great price, if you've counted the cost and you take up your cross daily and walk with Jesus, then I'm confident that you know this interaction that Paul is discussing. Because to live like that will bring suffering and persecution in your life. By rejecting the world, you bring persecution. By running from sin and to your Savior, this is a lifestyle that comes with suffering. And this is one of the most, I think, important personal realizations of suffering is it reveals what you really believe about God. It reflects your theology, how you respond to suffering. What happens if you're in Christ and you're suffering? You find, and you know this, that you rely more on God. You lean into the promises of God. You devour the Word of God. You become more prayerful. And you find that you love your Savior more than you thought you did. You actually begin bearing more fruit. There's more love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and good, goodness and gentleness and self-control that just is emanating out of your life because you have suffered well. You find that you have more love for the church, not less, and more praise and gratitude to God for your salvation. Of course, if you don't react in this, in this way at all, if you find that suffering makes you more selfish and rude and you run from God and you run from prayer, you become angry and bitter and anxious and rude and you avoid church and you're ungrateful to God. That's a great concern indeed. Because it reflects what you really believe about our good God and Father. See, suffering causes the roots to go deep into the ground. And what is really true and what is really right about God becomes more deeply felt in your life. His character, the character of God, is infinitely, eternally, and unchangeably good. And you know this in your heart of hearts when you suffer well. We see that Paul really does believe these things he's saying. He's just not writing a pretty letter. He really believes it. And you can take this to the bank. If God has predestined you and called you and justified you, He will comfort you. He will never leave you or forsake you. Brother, sister, remember this. Your, your Father in Heaven loves you. And He will never leave you or forsake you. And Jesus Christ knows your suffering. He came in the flesh. He suffered more than any of us will ever suffer. He felt the most immense sorrow and suffering and pain. 
So He knows your suffering. You can bring all of your cares to Him because He cares for you. And He will comfort you in your affliction. Your Father is kind to comfort His children. And He loves you with an unending love. So we see that there is a purpose to your suffering. You're chastened for sin, maybe, like Jonah. You're prevented from sin or other sin or preserving your family like Joseph. But in all cases, you're being sanctified, and this is the will of God, your sanctification. So we learn to trust God more, to lean on God more, to praise God more for our salvation. But another reason, an important reason for suffering, is in verse 4. And it's that we're better equipped to help the body of Christ. So when Paul mentions our affliction in verse 4, who comforts us in all our affliction, he's talking about his own personal trials. And his trials were great. In a strange way, this will comfort you if you feel like you're suffering. I don't think you've suffered like Paul. He says in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty four, five times I received from, from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false believers. I've labored and toiled and often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. And yet all that is the context for what we're reading in this passage today. All of that suffering served a great purpose for the church. As he was comforted, so Paul is able to comfort the church. He was physically afflicted, beaten, abused, stoned, shipwrecked, and all the other things. He was pursued by his enemies. He was imprisoned. He was maligned and slandered by his enemies in the church and outside the church. He was often consumed with anxiety for the church. In addition to all this, we read later that God sent a messenger of Satan to buffet him. This man knew suffering. And God sustained him and comforted him. You remember what he said? My grace is sufficient for you. And it's true for you as well. God's grace is sufficient for you. You will not receive an ounce more suffering than is required to accomplish God's purpose. Such is the love of our Father. He sees the great worth of suffering. In chapter 12 of this same letter, he says he delights. Paul delights in weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. He likes, he's not a a masochist. He's not saying he loves pain. He tells you why. For when I am weak, then I am strong. He's strong in the Lord. He doesn't want to serve in his own strength. He wants to serve in the strength of God. And he's also strong to help others. When your understanding of God's loving providence is like this, there's no limit to how God might use you to bless the church. And that's why we all need each other. Many of you have experienced great suffering that I have never experienced. If it's all on my shoulders or Jerry's shoulders to go meet the needs, the spiritual needs that are in the body, it's not going to work well. Some of you have lost spouses or children or parents. I have not lost any of those. How am I to comfort you? 
Well, of course, with the word of God, but you who have had loss in your life, you're better equipped to comfort those who go through those same difficulties. This is the beauty of the body of Christ. You are a blessing to the church in your suffering and after your suffering. You can comfort those who are going through the same afflictions with the comfort that you have received from God. This is Paul's point. As you have received, so you give to others. I remember uh, when I was a young officer, we had to go through POW, MIA training, uh, resistance training, and they try to recreate a prisoner of war camp. It's horrible. It's miserable. You're hungry. You don't get to sleep. Um, They do other things that... I can't talk about, but it's just a miserable time. But one of the things that's actually really special is they find real prisoners of war, people who have served as prisoners of war, and they bring them and they teach you what they've learned. And you know that you're learning something real because these are men who have suffered. I remember there were prisoners of war in Vietnam for years and years, five, six, seven years who faced all kinds of terrible things. These are the men who would come train. All of the new officers, all of the new folks who were going into combat. Why is that? Because as they had learned through real life experience, so they're giving to the rest of us who were going through that same training. Paul is saying much the same thing, that those who suffer are better equipped to help those who are suffering in the church. You certainly have a more deep and a more, more precise understanding of God's comfort when you've suffered in a particular way. And without troubles, there can be no real understanding of comfort. And without sickness, there can be no appreciation of health. And on and on and on through all the various ways that we suffer. So, suffering can produce praise to God. It should. Secondly, it shows God's kindness to us. Thirdly, we see that it equips us. But fourthly, we see that suffering reflects our union with Christ. And this is something that you may not completely understand. Indeed, I don't either because it's a little bit of a mystery. Paul says in verse 5 that as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. And this idea of sharing in the sufferings of Christ isn't just here. It's all through the New Testament. We're privileged to share in the sufferings of Christ. And this doesn't mean his redemptive suffering. Your suffering adds nothing to what God has done to save people. But upon our regeneration, when the Spirit regenerates us and enters our souls, when we exchange, when God exchanges our heart of stone for a heart of flesh, we're also united with Christ. We're united with Christ. I guess there is another Rutherford quote I wanted to read you. He says, I find crosses, Christ's carved work that he marks out for us. Crosses meaning our suffering. And that with crosses, he figures and portrays us to his own image, cutting away pieces of our ill and our corruption. Lord, cut. Lord, carve. Lord, wound. Lord, do anything that may perfect thy Father's image in us. And make us ready for your glory.
So as we recognize suffering, especially suffering that's a a direct result of our living a Christian life, we see that we are being conformed more and more to the image of Christ and we're sharing in Christ's suffering. As you live a Christian life, you certainly will suffer for it. And as the world begins to reject and hate God, especially even in the United States, we never thought we would see it. A world, a culture that hates God. More and more, true Christians will be suffering. Jesus said in John 15, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you. But because you're not of the world, I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. And if you read the book of Revelation, looking at God's love for his saints, you see that God's love for his saints is often reflected in the midst of their suffering. They're suffering for him, for his sake, for his name's sake. Because of that, we know that he will sustain us. So when we suffer and we recognize our union with Christ, when we're suffering for Christ, this is not talking about suffering as a natural result of your sin. It's not talking about, well, I I look at pornography every day and my marriage is failing. That's a different kind of suffering. That's just a natural result of your own sin. This is reflecting a real suffering because of Christ. It's a regular part of really being a Christian. Romans 8, Paul says that. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. But then he puts a condition on that. How do you know that your spirit bears witness with the Spirit of God? He says, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is just part of being a Christian. When God's Spirit dwells in you, you will suffer. You'll suffer with Christ. This principle really is all throughout the New Testament. Remember the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus said, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and other all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. Philippians chapter 3, Paul says, Whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've lost all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness that is from my own, that I might know the power of his resurrection and share in his sufferings, becoming like him in death that by any means possible I might attain the resurrection from the dead. You remember Jesus told you to take up your cross and follow him. This means suffering. Romans 12, Paul says, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. You're going to suffer with Christ. If you've counted the cost and decided to follow Christ, you will share in the suffering of Christ. But it's not just suffering. You'll also abundantly share in his comfort, he says. Verses 6 and 7, he says, If we're afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. 
If we're comforted, it's for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. Translation, this is real suffering. Paul's saying, I really suffered. You're really going to suffer if you're following Christ. This is not a game. Count the cost because it's coming. So it produces praise. It shows God's kindness. Suffering equips us and it helps us recognize our union with Christ. Fifthly, it brings us to the end of ourselves. This is verse 8. Don't want you to be unaware, brothers, the affliction we experienced in Asia. His travels in Asia, he felt greatly afflicted. And he says in verse 9 that he was so utterly burdened, sorry, it's verse 8, so utterly burdened that we despaired of life itself. He reached the very bottom of himself. And this was good, he says. This was good so that he would have nothing to hold on to but God. You've probably experienced times like this in your own life when a loving father says, no, I'm not going to let you have that idol. I won't let you love that other thing. You're going to love me alone. I will be the only thing that you worship. All true Christians experience that. Paul says he felt like he received the sentence of death. He had reached the very bottom of the bottom. But God brought Paul low to lift him up higher and stronger. It's a good thing for a Christian to come to the end of himself and to hold on only to God. Once you realize that you are not God, that you're weak and frail and foolish and weak and broken, then you can come to God who's strong and mighty. So I want to conclude with the sixth thing. Suffering resets our hope. He said the reason that he was brought to the end of himself was to make him rely not on himself, but on God who raises the dead. That's verse 9. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. And on him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. God raised him up to a new confidence and a new trust, a new hope. A new understanding of the hope that he has in Christ. He recognized that no one except the one who can raise the dead can help. That's why he asks for the prayers of the people of God. This inspires our prayer. We're praying to the only one who can help in any situation. No one else can help you. Only God can help you. And God in his providence has decided to use prayer to accomplish his purpose. This is our sovereign God. Nothing escapes his notice. There's no rogue molecule. There's nothing happening apart from his will. So we pray with great confidence that our loving and good God, who controls all things by the word of his power, he's the Father in heaven who desires us to ask him when we have needs because he will come and comfort. He loves his children. Brother, sister, if you are suffering, take comfort in God. Praise God for your salvation. Run hard after God. Call unto God. He desires to come. And if you're not suffering at this time, praise God. But when you do, remember. Remember these truths. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we are so overwhelmed by your goodness in our lives. And we thank you that indeed you have called us to yourself. You've called us to be your children. You've called us to be your own sheep. 
we pray that you would comfort our souls. And more than that, you would fix our eyes upon Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, that we would remember this great salvation, we receive the comfort that you have for your people, and that we would also be able to help others in times of their distress. Lord, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for our Savior. And we pray everything in his name.